Constructed Futures. I'm Hugh Seaton. Today I'm here with Scott Specht, founding principal at Specht Architects. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So I, I must confess, I looked at your website and was absolutely in love with some of what you've done. Do you want to talk a little bit about what Specht Architects have done and, and kind of how you look at the industry? Sure. And thank you for that praise for our work. Yeah, the Specht Architects, we started, you know, 25 plus years ago in New York City. At that time, it was Specht Hartman, Louise Hartman, who was my partner at the time. We started the firm and interesting getting started. We were a tiny, tiny firm just out of school. We took anything we could get. So we did like kitchen countertop replacements and, you know, radiator covers and things like that in New York and just very slowly built our way up to larger and larger projects. And and at, at, at one point, Louise Hartman was offered the deanship at University of Texas in Austin and had never been to Austin before. And we just up and moved. We were married at the time, by the way. And so we up and moved and start opened the office here. And both have been thriving since that point. And, you know, our firm's gone through a lot of cycles from it, depending on what the economy was doing from residential, it moved into doing a lot more tech offices at certain points to university buildings. And right now, large private residential projects seem to be our forte. So that's where we've ended up. And, you know, our, our practice is a little bit different than most in that not only do we do these houses and build them and, and do all the usual architectural functions, we have a whole side branch of doing experimental projects. And some of them have ties to reality. Some of them don't. But we always try to have a topic in mind when we do a, an experimental project. And they link back to our built work. So it, it ties into a, a fascination of mine with houses of the future and how throughout you know the 20th century, especially, that these visions of houses, how we were going to live in the future took hold and how they uh, affected architecture in reality as we moved up to today. Well, I'd love to stop there. Let's talk about what houses of the future means. I mean, one thing I'd, I'd like to ask, I believe you're calling them zero house where you've got yes. a couple of designs that feel like they are an inspiration and an, almost an experiment to try out ideas. Is that right? That's correct. And, and most of these experiments, you know, have a, a component where they're intended to be sold and built. And we certainly have had a lot of, a lot of inquiries into them. The problem with a lot of them is that when it gets down to numbers, cost per square foot, <laughs> most people start to uh, lose interest at that point because these things can often be pretty expensive to build. But, uh, you know, we're experimenting with a number of things that are much lower cost at this point and, and working toward those. But, you know, the history of the house of the future is interesting. You know, the kind of house of the future we're talking about really was a, a 20th century phenomenon, early 20th century, that there were a number of people out there doing experiments with things that moved on from classical inspiration or even Art Nouveau, which was kind of a classically inspired, but moving into ornament that was referred to different things than traditional Roman or Greek architecture. And so in the 1920s, a lot of these were built. And one branch, mostly done in Europe, became what we know as modern architecture. And that, it's always fascinating to look back at some of those house, early houses by Mies van der, Rohe, van der Rohe and Le Corbusier and others is it built in 1929, but if you took those today and put them on the cover of Dwell magazine with kind of a hipster family and a dog in front, nothing would look out of place. They could be built down the street right now. That's one line of the House of the Future, but there was another weirder line that interests me more in where the houses went way off the track with what was known before. And they often took 
circular forms for some very interesting reasons. A lot of them were shown at trade fairs and world's fairs. And so there's a whole different line that, that branched off from there that were less realistic, had less impact on the actual built world, and, but presented some fascinating visions of what could be. Well, how much do you find that, that some of these ideas and these, these directions that are almost probably a collection of ideas are influenced by other ideas in psychology and, and depending on what you're talking about, maybe even sociology, but there are waves of theories about how humans interact and how they, how they can live a healthy, prosperous life. It sounds like that's part of it. So, some of it is a part of it. And uh, a lot of it is even more basic than that in terms of biology. I mean, a lot of the modern movement, and this is not talked about that much, but a lot of the modern movement came from discoveries in sanitation and germ theory. Things like, you know, some of the earliest modern works that, that we can recognize as modern came from hospitals or sanatorium sanitariums that were designed with rounded curves for corners so that dust wouldn't collect in them and very clean tile surfaces that had no ornament that dust or you know dirt could collect on or germs could collect on and so that that was a big part of the descriptions of a lot of these modern pieces of architecture that were the very earliest ones so it's fascinating how that ties back into recent discoveries in biology in terms of psychology and sociology, probably less so. Uh, I think there were, you know, social movements at the time, uh, movements toward collectivism and the communist uh, wave that was happening in the early 1900s. I certainly influenced a lot of that. A lot of those design ideas were picked up by the early socialists and really were symbols of that movement. It was sort of a wave of the future. They were seen as part of what was to come and they tied it to their social movement and sort of made that architecture and posters and graphic design and, and, you know, clothing design all was a part of one thing in presenting a way of the future. And so there was a lot of ties in that. Now, as you move through the years, it certainly drifted away from that. And by the 1950s, it became really futurism became a symbol of corporate power. A lot of the biggest corporations used, you'll see magazine articles that are really beautiful, but their renderings of how we're going to live in the future tied into, of course, their products. So like Motorola hired some great artists to do renderings of these crazy houses of the future and everybody's watching a Motorola TV and, and some of them are very beautiful. Uh, Walt Disney had a big part in promoting houses of the future is for Disneyland, when it was built in 1955, Tomorrowland was kind of a half-empty land. It got less funding than the rest of the park and was not even really intended to be opened with it. So in order to get it built, he brought in corporations, and they funded most of the exhibits there. And one of the earlier exhibits was the Monsanto House of the Future. It was all made of plastic. All the interiors were made of plastic, and it became great promotion for Monsanto, but also linked this corporate vision of the future into something that is was visited by millions of people. That's pretty amazing that the influences, on the one hand, you started that arc just a moment ago with collectivist, socialist influences and kind of ended almost on a capitalist, like, in other words, saying, look, it happens everywhere. <laughs> one society, it was this set of influences and it happened here too. And it was this set of influences. Where do you see that now? Now it's all over the place, but you know, some of the same tendencies are happening. I mean, I don't want to get deeply into politics here right now, but uh, there have been proposals for the idea that federal architecture 
has to be in a classical style. And that's moved through a number of organizations who are heavily trying to promote it. And it it's an interesting idea because that's been done many, many times through history where a political party tries to tie itself to a, a form of architecture that they say represents their values. And it's always been sort of a crazy failure with some, you know, really bizarre hybrid forms of architecture being generated from that. So uh, you do see it still happening quite a bit. I know there's been a lot of protests about the this possibility of moving toward classicism as a representation of governmental architecture. And it and it's always a failure. Uh, the thing that people don't talk about, they're always like, why don't we build buildings like this anymore? Well, you really can't. You just literally can't. I, a lot of those buildings that were built, say, in Washington, D.C., when the you know original capital was being built and planned, you could get labor that costs nothing or almost nothing. And a lot of these people were very skilled stonemasons that came over from Italy and were trained there. You can't do that now. You just can't get that kind of labor to be able to produce something like that for any reasonable budget. And budget standards have changed. You used to spend, even in the private sector, you'd find warehouse buildings built in the 19th century that had a lot of ornament, carved ornament. And it was because that was built in as what was expected to be a, a part of a budget. And now that is not the case. You would have to go way above and beyond what's considered a reasonable budget for a warehouse to be able to do something like that. So a lot has changed, but a lot of those influences still remain, where architecture is seen to have some sort of power as a symbol for political movements. How interesting. And it must be hard if you've got a project that's more than two years long, like, oh, wait, new people are in charge. Yeah. I guess we'll soften those edges and let's have some more blue. Yeah, it's a, it, less of a problem for architecture because it's, you know, architecture you, building project, you know, a medium sized one as a three year commitment, maybe. But if you have, say, if you're in the aerospace industry or something like that, and a project gets underway, and it's a 10 year project, you have no idea what's going to happen. And that's why so many things have come and gone and got canceled halfway through. And, and yeah, yeah, it, it's definitely a problem when you're reliant on government financing for anything. And if we could switch gears back to home of the future, talk to me about where you see that now. And, I, and we kind of wandered a little bit there, but as you think about talking about home of the future, we just talked about some influences from the past. How does that influence how you think now? Yeah. Uh, well, through the 1950s, through the 70s, 80s, even even up to very recently, the, the idea of the house of the future was always optimistic in some way. You know, it was sort of, we're going to live in this way that's going to make our lives so much better and easier. It had a lot to do with automation, integration of technology, and a lot of it was efficiency as well. You'd see a lot of these things like Buckminster Fuller's, you know, a Dymaxion house. It was a circular form. It could be produced in airplane factories and built like that and placed anywhere and used wind currents, all that. You see that sort of circular form. Even the Disney Monsanto House of the Future had kind of a symmetrical circular form that looked futuristic and optimistic. You started to see in the 1990s, I guess, houses respond more to concerns about climate. You know, there was a lot of solar panels on houses, and sometimes they went back in, in to traditional construction techniques like earth-sheltered houses, that sort of thing, but combined with a technology that uh, could protect or allow the house to be self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. And I think some of our projects at that time really did pick up on that. Like the zero house you mentioned before, the idea there, it was a modular house system 
that only required four helical anchors to anchor it to any site. So there was no foundation excavation. You could put it in environmentally sensitive sites, stack these modules up with a crane. They were like mobile home units. And then a big solar wing went on top that also collected rainwater. So it's not only self-sufficient, but it was fairly beautiful and it had a minimal impact on the site and got a lot of interest. It was actually used, images of it were used in an ad campaign in the Wall Street Journal for, for DuPont. They, they just liked the look of it and did that. But there were a number of things you know, that came about from that project. The most recent one I'm doing now, though, and I'm actually building it as my own house, is called the New American House. And it takes a little bit of a different turn, and it plays more on what's happening socially now. It's a house that harkens back to ancient houses. It's more like a Roman house. A Roman house had no windows facing the street or exterior and looked inward towards a large inner courtyard that also collected rainwater. The, there was called the impluvium at the bottom where the rainwater would fall into it and go into a cistern below the house. So this new house, the new American house, is the same thing. It has no windows on the exterior. And it has, instead of one big courtyard responding to privacy concerns, it's got three courtyards. It's got a, a large one for the public spaces, and then it's got one for each bedroom that's a little private courtyard. Lots of glass, so you get these views out toward very controlled courtyard plantings. And it feels very open and light and I'm about halfway done with my own right now and starting to really love it now that the framing's gone up and you can really get a feel for the spaces. The great thing about it is it's, you know, unlike a suburb, I live right now in a kind of inner suburb, I guess you call it. It's a house built in 1959, fairly close to the city, but it's a traditional suburban house where you have windows on all sides, but your next, the next house over is 10 feet away is five foot setbacks on each side. So the side windows, the blinds are always closed. Right. Then the backyard is fenced in. So you're looking at a fence in the backyard and the only open window is toward the front. And you usually keep that closed too, because you don't want your, you know, your FedEx delivery guy looking in your front windows. So it, you have all these windows, but it doesn't make sense for the context. Whereas a, a walled house, you don't worry about any of that. It doesn't even have blinds because, it, and it's got floor to ceiling glass looking out to these courtyards. So you really do feel like you're in nature, even though it's a small controlled bit of nature, it's far superior to what I think a typical house would would be the views from that would be. So I'm, I'm excited about this idea, even though it's not the vision of optimism that some of the other earlier houses of the future might be. I think in terms of function and where I'd actually want to live, I'm I'm really enjoying the the process of designing it and putting it together. It feels like a response to density, and you know I spent a bunch of years in China, and this is reminiscent of what they did as well, right? Like they were. China was all about a wall around the home and various courtyards and, and spaces that were used for different things. But the idea was you were in a pretty dense urban or even quasi-urban area where it doesn't, didn't make any sense to have ex your orientation externally. It made sense to have your orientation internally, where to the point you're making, you can exercise some control over what's there and what's going on, as opposed to, you know, who knows what the neighbor across the street or 10 feet away from you is, is doing really, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, exactly. And I've always been interested in what I call scrap lands, which are, if you look on MLS in any city in Austin, prices went crazy for a while and now they've settled down, but there are always these odd pieces of land that are leftovers. They're kind of like directly adjacent to the interstate on-ramp and most people don't want them because there's no view There's and there's acoustical problems and all kind of things. And I thought, you know, this kind of house, this walled house is perfect for 
for both of those concerns. You don't have to worry about the view and, you know, it, it alleviates a lot of the, you know, acoustical problems of being next to an interstate. So I'm, I'm fascinated by those. I think this house, you know, could go in semi-industrial settings because the, the, the setting doesn't matter. It's really only zoning that's controlling where you can put it and where you can't. And maybe that needs to change. Well, you're also in Texas where some of the zoning is looser than it is in some other parts of the country, which... Well, I'm in Austin, which is not really, (laughs) not the same as the rest. Zoning here is very, very tight. And, you know, the building department is very strict. So yeah, it's not quite the same. Although, you know, the zoning here is fairly progressive in the way that lots now, you know, over 5,000 square feet, and they're, they're reducing this number, can divide themselves and you can put an ADU, an accessory dwelling unit in the back. So you can have two houses on a, on a single family lot. And that's where my house is being built. I, they've, I took a lot that was being condoized. The, the accessory unit in the back was sold off as a separate piece of property. That's what I bought. And so my own house is accessible only by a, an alley in the back. It's an alley flat. Really cool. And really interesting that, you know, if it, from what I'm hearing, if it works here, it's probably going to work in most zoning environments or certainly it'll be applicable. Yeah, absolutely. It, it will. The only, the trick to it is, is that when you do these courtyards, a lot of times you have a perimeter wall that's more like a fence. You can't put it right on the property line. You have to use the setback still because, you know, property line fences usually have a lot of restrictions to them, such as a certain height, you know, here at six feet maximum. And, you know, a lot of times there's view regulations through the fence and everything. So, you have to consider these courtyard walls as actual walls of the house. And that was the, the most amazing thing. When I submitted this for you know approval by the buildings department here, I expected, oh my God, what the hell is this? We've never seen anything like it before. It's going to take forever to get through. And it flew right through. I, I was just utterly amazed because no project flies through here in Austin quickly. So they didn't seem to have any problem with it. Really interesting. You know, the conversation we just had reminds me a little bit that sometimes what's old is new, right? Like people tried in the 50s and and I think primarily the 50s and maybe the 40s to come up with entirely new, out of nowhere ideas about what the house of the future might look like. But it was all in abstract. It was all making really big assumptions about technology and, and things that you can't really predict. Whereas what I'm hearing you say is we're actually, you know, taking ideas that were human centered 2000 years ago. And using them as a lens to say, well, okay, we've got a lot of different parts of our lives, different technology and so on. But at the end of the day, you're still talking about people living somewhere. And a lot of the lessons that were learned that long ago still apply and can certainly guide the process of design. Is that, is that part of how you think? Absolutely. It's, you know, it is, it's interesting in that way. But what we think of as a house, freestanding structure with lots of windows looking outward is kind of an anomaly, in a way, at least in ur- any sort of urban setting. It's, you know, a short period of history where these things were transplanted. You know, the basis for the suburban house was always some sort of ranch house out in a field, you know, with lots of view in all directions and no worries about neighbors for the most part. So it doesn't really work as a model, but it's an image that was tried to be when the first suburbs were built in Long Island. That was the whole idea. You move from the city and the cramped nature to you're out in the country now, even though you're 10 feet away from another house. So the image of the house had to match that. And even though it didn't function as well as some other form might, it, it gave people what they wanted to perceive their lives as being at the time. Yeah, that's really interesting. How do you see this vision of the new American house 
fitting in other other things you're seeing out in the market and other other ideas you're hearing people talk about is the idea of an American house evolves. You don't hear that much now, which is odd about people doing things like this. You know, I came of age in the 1990s, it architecturally came of age, I should say. And, you know, at the time there was, there were a couple of recessions in a row and I think this led to it, but there were a lot of architects who, the idea of building projects was out there, but doing your own experimental work was more, almost more important. And Rem Koolhaas got his start in the late 70s with Delirious New York, which was a manifesto of his projects combined with ideas about the city and built his practice upon more theoretical research than actually building projects. And so everyone was doing that sort of thing at the time. And it was kind of rare that you didn't have your private little project that you were working on in your office along with the, with the built work. And I just don't see too many, I think there's too much work right now for architects or a lot of architects. So you don't spend your time doing that kind of thing. But I've always seen it as a really important part of developing your own feelings and what, what you really believe about buildings. Without it, it's kind of hard. You end up repeating yourself a lot. Otherwise, you find something that's successful and you just duplicate that over and over, whether or not it truly works well or not. It reminds me of when in a painter and or a visual artist will do a study, right? Where they'll, they'll either it's a sketch or it's a test of, of things. I mean, if you look at how some of the greatest paintings are done, they're often surrounded. Sometimes they're still kept and, you know, often they're not. Where the artist tried things out, I think in some cases it was technical, but in others, I think it was creative. It's what, what, do, I, what do I believe about this? What am I trying to express and, and how do I express it? It feels like what you're saying is, maybe less than we wish were true, a key part of being a, a productive and creative um, architect is your own side projects where you're trying things out without the gaze of, of a client and maybe without some of the pressures, but you can try things out and just see what would happen if I connected X to Y and, and you know Y to Z and made it round instead of not so round, what would happen? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a hard thing in architecture because what really matters in architecture is in the end, a building of some sort that's inhabited. And you can't just go out and do that as an experiment on your own because the costs are too great. So you're you're relying on building models or digital models or something else to represent your ideas. You know, I keep I, I, sometimes I tell this to clients about, you know, we're not like the car industry where you're, you come up with a design and you can build 20 test models and you really test them to death and see how they perform before you go into production. When you do architecture, it's, it's scary because you design it on a piece of paper, you do some drawings and it gets built. Whatever you drew gets built. It's so doing experiments with other people's money, especially when it's so much money is, is something that you tend to shy away from in a lot of cases. And especially when lawsuits are so prevalent, you don't want to do anything that has a chance of especially leaking or things like that. You know, I, I, Paul Rudolph projects with 58 different roof planes and flashing everywhere. You really couldn't even propose those kind of things now. It would just never fly. So it's interesting how that the legal landscape has really changed architecture. Do you find though, that there are still, you know, well off, I don't want to call them patrons, but you know, individuals who are willing to, to maybe work with you a little bit and try some things out. Maybe it's on the, not putting, not betting too much, but but at least they're saying, I want my home to be special. How can we do this? I mean, certainly some of the things I've seen you design on your website look pretty original. And I'm, I'm sure the materials used and so on are, are you know, completely reliable and, and so on. But 
it does feel like you've been given some latitude with, by, by some, you know, residential folks that look pretty cool. Yeah, uh, we, I consider myself extremely lucky and to be able to do that because it's not super common. And yes, we've had great clients who give us, put a lot of trust in us. And I think part of that is that I've been in it so long, you know, we're not going to propose anything crazy that's going to leak. We just don't do that. We're very attentive to to detailing. But yes, I think we, we, we have built a rare practice in being able to do that. And, you know, a lot of that is luck. It really is. There's a there's an interesting path that of clients that have come along at the right time and given us the right kind of work to get the right kind of attention and and not everybody has that luck. So I, I know some extremely talented designers that I went to school with and they've kind of gotten themselves in other kind of paths that didn't lead the same place. So I, I'm very thankful. Well, I think I would assume also part of it is you have to really know the rules before you can break them. And in this case, it's got to be doubly true, right? Is you, you need to really understand how a building performs. So if you're going to you know, push some boundaries, you know you're not pushing boundaries on the material side or on the safety or on the, the leakage side. Absolutely. You know, water is always the biggest concern, always. And that is where most architects get into problems is proposing details that leak. And so we... Our firm, actually, every project, we have a third party, you know, review of every construction document that goes out for that very reason, for water. So we, we make sure that our projects don't leak. <laughs> yeah, that, that totally. There, there are only a few other, you know, in, uh, items that, you know, you can get into major issues with, with architecture. And, and a lot of them are not, you know, destructive. There, there are more things like maybe you made this room a few inches too small or too large. And I think we've also honed our, practice over many, many years into coming up with what kind of spaces feel the best, what size is the best for a bedroom of X type. So, and it, it does matter, inches matter in those kind of things. And a lot of people don't quite understand that in terms of the feel. So, but, you know, getting back to it is I think water is the most critical one. Yeah. I actually had someone on the podcast once whose their company goes into primarily residential buildings, usually six months or so after completion and then to, to fix and remediate and so on. And their number one thing is water. So yeah, yep. <laughs> I, I mean, it makes sense. Well, this has been really cool, Scott. I, I love, I love what you guys are doing and I love the way you're thinking about it. Listen, thank you very much for being on the podcast In the show notes. We'll We'll reference some of the great work that you guys have done and, and, and look forward to seeing more. Uh, it was a pleasure. And uh, thank you very much for having me on.